we seek out people who want to do daring and dangerous, wonderful bits of architecture. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of the show. Great as always to have you with me. Thanks for tuning in. Got another terrific show coming up for you today. A guest that I'm sure you will enjoy listening to. We'll get to that shortly. And I have to say, I have some amazing guests lined up for the next few episodes and I can't wait to bring them to you, so stay tuned. What's been happening in your world? Keeping your projects moving, I trust? A lot has happened with me since the last episode of the show. Melbourne has come out of lockdown after 11 weeks, thank God, which has been great. So life is slowly getting back to some sort of normal. Construction continues on my project and we've made three strong sales in the past few weeks which is a nice boost to the sales velocity. And progress should speed up on the build now that restrictions have been lifted on the number of people that can work on site. So we have now sold half of the properties in the project, which is great considering we haven't even laid the slabs yet. Speaking of slabs, we begin pouring them this week. So that will be another milestone to tick off once they are down. On my other project, we are just in the process of finalising a tender package of documentation so that we can start speaking with some builders about the construction of those townhouses and see where we will land on the cost front. At this stage, we still can't ask the tenant in that house to vacate until March next year due to the moratorium on evictions that's in place across Victoria at the moment. So that means we have plenty of time to get the construction costs sorted out and get all the other ducks lined up. Thanks to the many people who've been emailing me recently saying they have found the show and have been really enjoying it. Feel free to post a comment on iTunes if you're also getting some value from the show. And remember you can find all my latest project updates and other news on Facebook and Insta under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. Okay, before we get to today's guest, if you are interested in learning how to develop, then we have the mentoring program available to help show you everything you need to know to become a successful property developer. Email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com if you want to know more. Right, on to today's guest, Joe Adset. Joe is a Brisbane-based architect that has turned his hand to developing his own projects. Like many architects, Joe started his practice and took on whatever commissions he could win. As he grew and evolved, he did some renovation projects along the way and started designing luxury residential homes for his growing client base. He was then presented with an unexpected opportunity to do a development project and that gave him a taste for being the developer and delivering exciting projects he could control. The decision to do his own projects had a number of unintended consequences for Joe and the architecture practice, which he will share during our conversation. There's a lot of great lessons in this chat, so keep an ear out for the importance of having the right alignment with your project team partners the benefits of being daring and dangerous, and how you can identify and amplify your success. I really enjoyed this chat with Joe, and I'm sure you will too. So let's get into it and start off by finding out what food Joe would eat until he was sick. Um, Pizza is definitely it, because I did it 
just last night I um I overindulged on pizza. So <laughs> Well you and I are in the same boat then. And what's your go to pizza? What what did you overindulge in last night? Oh uh, uh Cap- Capricosa. Um you know, so I really got stuck into it and uh yeah, just had way too much and um my wife just gave me this look like, you know, what you've done and um yeah. <laughs> yeah, ball been there. That's it. Pizza's so easy to just keep shoveling into your face, so I, I completely it, sympathise. It, 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 it is. It just expands on you. It it, it, cap, it catches up, so and it's just it's too delicious to. And you think, oh, it's so so feathery and lightweight. I'll just keep going with this and and, and hang in there. But um, yeah, it sneaks up on you. <laughs> well, Joe, it's great to have you on the show. And as usual, we're going to be talking about developing. And you're an architect, trained architect, that also does their own projects. So can you give us a bit of an idea about uh, your background? Yeah, so I started studying architecture a good, good um, 18, 19 years ago, um, finished my degree, started working um, at Richard Kirk Architect, doing some of the larger buildings around town, and then eventually went out into my own practice and started that quite early doing architecture. Um Really went along with that for about going for about ten years now, and um, kind of found myself falling into development about four or five years ago, um, and and really um, yeah found my niche in in both kind of development and architecture. And so, what was it that drew you into architecture? I think. Um, my, my father was kind of spotted a bit of talent in me and he, he had a go at trying to – my father was an architect and uh, he tried to recruit my brother and my brother said no, um, my sister said no, and I think I was the the, the, um, the youngest child and last chance and, and, and I, I was really good at graphics and he kind of said, look, you, you've got to have a go at this. Um, and I didn't want to do it. And then I went and did a day of work experience at his office and I just went, wow, this is, um, this is fantastic. I, I love it. So – I was quite hooked. Um, and it's one of those things, you go into the profession, you start studying it, and when you start working, you get really good at it. You, you, you kind of practice it so much, you get really good at something, and then you think, wow, this, this is actually for me. I, I can make a real go of this. And what is it about architecture that you, that you love? I just I love the idea of creating something from scratch, from something from your mind, um, an idea, and bringing it to life is is um, it, it's such a kind of primary kind of um, skill set that, that we all have as humans and, and the ability to do that on, on a large scale and, and make meaningful buildings and places that, that can, you know, change people's lives. It's, um, that, 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 um, that resonates with me. Yeah, I've had a look at your website and some of the projects that you've worked on and I have to say, pretty stunning architecture that you've, um, that you've developed Oh, thank you, Justin. That's 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 kind of say it's um it's definitely a uh, a collaborative effort in all our projects, and really um it's fair to say um that you know architects are only as good as their clients, um and um, in many ways developers can also uh, attest to um, um their, their buildings can only be as 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 good as their customers are, are prepared to pay for them as well. So it, it's it's a kind of a a delicate balance and a dance there with with uh, clients and customers in in developing and architecture. It is, and uh, there's definitely a symbiotic relationship between the developer and the designer. So let's find out about how you got into doing your own projects. 
Yeah, I guess it was really by accident. Um, you know, like in our early years as an architect, we had this kind of uh, – when you start a firm as a young architect, you, you really um, commit career suicide in, in some regards because you go from doing these great large signature projects and you, you take the leap of faith and you, you jump off and you, you end up doing – anything for everybody and um you know that's from humble toilet blocks to kitchen renovations to um you know just anything that comes your way and what we found ourselves doing as many young architects do is you you do a lot of work for development uh, developers on a, a speculative basis and you know going to developers and saying hey I, I think this could work on this site and um we, we got a knack for doing that and what i found increasingly frustrating is um, taking ideas to developers and then saying, nah, that's, I, don't, I don't think that's a good idea. And, and I'd kind of sit there and go, well, I think it's a good idea. I, I think this could work. And, and it was really kind of born out of that that um, got to the point so frustrated with um, developers not taking it seriously. I'm just like, well, I, I'm going to have a go at this. Um, and, and so we did. And so how did you get started? What were those first couple of projects? What did they look like? First couple of projects um, was really looking at the idea of building an office for ourselves, and there was a small site across the road from our current office that we were leasing. And I thought oh, I'll, I'll, I'll approach, approach the old lady that owns that um, and and see if she'll let me renovate it and 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 renovate the property and things like that under a long term lease with an option to buy. Um, Turned around said no, don't want to do that, but you know. I, I'll consider selling you the property, um, and and so there's only one catch. And I said, well, what's the catch? Um, she said, well, look, um, you, you need to buy the adjoining property as well from the other old lady. And I thought, okay, uh, hadn't thought about that. And I said, can I have a moment to think about it? And you know, I hung up the phone, thought about it, and thought, okay, might as well explore this. And um, really, this accidental project was born in that we had the opportunity to do a much larger project. It was way too big for an office um, for, for ourselves, for a practice, but um, it was a perfect opportunity to get into a, a large multi-residential project. Um, and so what did that look like? What number of units? Was it a mix yeah, of it was, commercial it and was, residential? Um, it, it could have been anything. It was a particularly particularly generous zoning um, in, in the, the local area of Tenerife and Brisbane, and we looked at it from the point of view at the at the time there was an incredible investment boom of smaller one and two bedroom apartments being built in Brisbane. Um, I could see that that was definitely going to come to an end, given that every man and his dog was um, in that market at the time. Um, I, I'd been following a lot of the demographers and literature talking about the undersupply of three-bedroom apartments only making up, I think it was 5% of the market share at that point in time. And I thought, well, I really only want to develop things that I'd want to live in. So we looked at the idea of doing generous larger apartments as a point of difference in the marketplace. And of course, um, you know, by the time our approval came through um, with council, there was, I think we had approval for 18 um, large owner-occupied units. Um, and by the time that approval came through, uh, the investment market was absolutely tanking. It was um, it was it was dire in Brisbane, and prices were falling backwards. It, it was not good. It was a very very um, tough time. And um, but at the same time, there was just no supply of larger um, owner occupier units, and we were the, probably the only 
developer on the market. That ourselves and Murbach had a larger project down the road, um, and you know we just we just it was good timing. So did you say it was eighteen apartments? Yeah, eighteen. That's right. So that's a pretty juicy first development project to take on, Joe. Yeah, it was it was substantial, um, and I called um, a client of mine who had become a neighbour in, in in my suburb and said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to team up on this?" Um, and he had a background in uh, property finance, um, working for the major banks, and um, I said, I, "I really need someone to help me get finance on this project and and help me put a bigger deal together." So, you know, a partnership was formed on that basis. Um, Craig, um, my partner, he, he um, put in some equity and I matched him with respect equity um, in terms of purchasing the land. And to do that, um, my wife and I decided to sell our house and um, yeah, <laughs> rent rent for, uh, I think, four or five years. We made the conscious decision with a young family, which was um, uh, uh, a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, and, that's always the good um, conversation to have with your wife when you're a developer, isn't it? Hey, we're going to sell the house and put it all into this project. Pretty much, um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm lucky to have a wife that um, um, is is very very intelligent and um, um, not not afraid of taking calculated risks. So uh, uh, she she could see what I was trying to do and was completely on board. And in many ways, um, she, she's part of the partnership um, in so many respects. And so, t- tell me a bit about some of your fears or when you were looking at the project and it was looking to be much bigger than perhaps you'd originally anticipated. What were you looking at it from the perspective of in terms of the risks or the fears? What was going through your mind? The, the major one is or was at the time was um, um, the cost of building. So I was, um, we were in a strange situation where the cost of construction was getting out of control because of the uh, the investment boom that that, that was happening at, at the same time and prices were kind of seen to just be going up and up and up and up. Um, I was very, very afraid that we would kind of uh, not make any profit, but um, we, we managed to work with one of the major builders um, and, and get it to a price that made complete fiscal sense and, and, and a good exchange happened there. So that was probably the, the, the primary risk. Um, the other one was around about um, settlements at the other end and just worrying that kind of, yeah, it was, a, it was a whole new world of you know um, disclosure statements and, and and legals and contracts and off the plan and all these commitments and that our real estate agents were saying and making and hoping that at the back end of the project um, these people would settle their units, um, you know, it, and 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 not have issues around solvency and all these other things were happening in the market. So there, there was a bit of risk carried carried with that project, but I. I guess I'm kind of uh, a bit of a, an eternal optimist, so I, I tend not to see the risks sometimes, which is uh, a, a wonderful personality trait, but also um, uh, it's something to be very mindful of and, and have people in your team around you to um, uh, to counter that, that uh, uh, can can predict those those blind blind spots that, that perhaps I can't see at times. So when you talk about the construction cost risk and that being a major concern to you, which you addressed uh, by working with a good contractor, can you talk to me about how you de-risk that or the steps that you took to get yourself comfortable? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's something I do very early on. So we write the project feasibility um, and I like to bring a builder in almost upfront on a project. And it, it sounds ridiculous. Most, most people say, oh, you know, go out to a competitive tender, do this X, Y, Z. That, that's the traditional form of the profession of architecture to get a whole swathe of drawings and then put it out to the market but um, to get the most competitive price. But, but I, I know exactly how builders work and the more complex and uh, detailed a project seems or appears, um, typically the, the, the higher the price will be. So I think if you can bring a builder in, in early and, and use their expertise and knowledge and work with them, um, you'll actually get the best out of the builder and, and their skill sets. And, and there's a genuine collaboration occurs there where everyone has a vested interest in quality up front, knowing that that's the primary driver, but it needs to be built into the budget. Otherwise, there is no project. So um, the, the, the builder knows it. Um, the architect knows it, the developer knows it. Everyone has the, the, the common goal there of seeing the project succeed and um, th- th- there's a financial benefit to the builder to, to being a part of that team um, and, and knowing what the, the, the core drivers are around price, time, quality, all these expectations, they, they become part of the team rather than this uh, more adversarial approach where you, you go out to a tender and line up all these compete competitors against each other i don't think it does well i actually think um the only people that win out of that process is typically the subcontractors um because invariably the builders are all using the same subcontractors to tender a project so you know it just becomes a well, who's going to pad their price the least in order to win the bid and the builder that you were working with how did you identify them as being the people that you wanted to partner with yeah, so we listened to, um, again, my development partner, background in finance, said, well, look, let's talk to the bank and ask the bank to put forward a few builders, um, noting that, you know, if the bank's happy with your builder, it's much easier to obtain finance. So we did it that way. And, of course, the bank puts forward the um, all the big boys in construction typically, um, but but also um, they put forward some very good operators. Um one of those operators uh, went insolvent at the very start, so we, we did actually have to change builder uh, very early on. Um, Sorry, how early we, on? The, the, the original builder that we started working with in a collaborative way, um, he, he ended up going insolvent, that, that company. So, um, how far we, along we ended the up project? changing? Sorry, how far uh, along before, the course? Before we started the project, of course. Okay. Um, but we did see the, the warning signs there and we, you know, um, what were those? Stepped out of that relationship and into a newer one um, with a larger builder who, um, you know, we obviously did some more solvency checks and, and looked into that. Um, Sorry, can I and, just jump and in and ask you, Joe, of course. just the warning signs that you said that the builder was going insolvent, can you remember what they were? Yeah, absolutely. The We, we had a kind of fixed price offer lined up to, to build the project and that builder... Um, at the time, came back and said, oh, look, um, we, we need to increase this uh, price a bit more. The price of a crane's gone up. And we said, okay, how much has gone up? Oh, about, about half a million dollars. Okay, that's, that's, that's a big jump. Um, certainly, we haven't budgeted for that. So, things like that start happening and, and you go, well, look, really, um, this, this is a bit of a cash grab. Um, changes to terms around getting money quickly is always a warning sign with builders. And and having been through that in private practice and seeing builders go bust um, on many to- many occasions, you, you get a sense for when 
builders are getting close to the wall. Um, and, and typically it does take about 18 months from that period on for a builder to actually go insolvent or, or you know, be liquidated or, or whatever process they go through. But um, um, the, the writing is typically on the wall pretty early. Um, a, a, another colleague of mine who's a developer, very good developer, he always calls up the subbies because he says the subbies always know who um, goes bust first and it's typically the guys who aren't getting paid. So if he calls his normal painter and he says, oh, such and such didn't pay me, he knows not to tender to that builder. Um, so you kind of uh, learn the smarts um, from a lot of guys in the industry and, and, and we did a bit of calling around and everyone had confirmed saying with that particular builder and we thought, look, I think it's time to to, to move on to a, a different builder and luckily it was early in the piece and, and we could we could get out, get away. There was no binding contract in place and we were able to um, um, you know, reconvene with, a, with, with, with another very good and talented contractor. Yeah, I'm just curious about that situation. So did you feel that you had a lot of skin in the game then that would preclude you or that made you hesitate to move to another builder? Yeah, it was very early on. There was a lot of IP with respect to how that builder and the methodology that they wanted to build that particular project. Um, luckily, that still resonated with uh, a builder that was a similar um, um had it all had a team in place that was a similar size that, that they could just fit right into that mould. They did make some changes. Again, one of the things they changed was the crane. They said, yeah, look, that is true. Crane prices have been going through the roof, not not to that extent, but um, they had a better solution, which was to build the project with the mobile cranes and rent the site adjoining, which is something that no one had proposed. So, again, some some really good intel there saved um, I think we ended up saving about three or four hundred thousand on a, on the cost of cranes across that project. So um, again, you, you just don't get that intel unless you um, get a builder in early and you can make those you know larger decisions about you know how, how to how to um, how to build a project successfully, not just price a project successfully. And so, how did you then come up with builder B? Were they on the um, list? We. <laughs> Picked the uh, largest builder in Queensland <laughs> with the biggest bank balance, so that that was um, um, a, a bit of a warning shot to to always uh, uh, do business with um, um, people who are really large, well capitalised contractors. I think um, I think that's a timely a timely lesson, and that we'll probably only stay in that space um, forevermore when we're doing these large projects. Yeah, I think. It's always a temptation just to look at the bottom line and if you go through a tender process or whatever process you go through to get a build price, and I think it's just really risky to look at the simplistically at the bottom line and go, well, who's the cheapest builder? Because it's such a, a long-term project or the build time and there, I think there's a, there's a relationship premium that's worth paying for someone that's really good that you can trust that you can work through solving problems absolutely and and it's 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 again like the developer who says well look if i won't live in the product no one will it's it's the same yardstick test so if the developer has doubts about how quality the builder is um those same doubts are your customers they have i, I was blown away on our first project at how important the builder was in the uh, buyer's decision to buy off the plan. 
they literally wanted to know every bit about the builder. And as soon as we said, look, it's XYZ Constructions or, you know, the, the name of the builder, um, they were completely, you know, blown away and said, oh, I'm so relieved, the big, big, great building group, um, they're, they're going to be building my home. And and I couldn't quite fathom um, how successful we became as a result of using um, um, a really big builder. So the decision of who you use to build does play in the minds of buyers, you think? Absolutely. Um, particularly in the owner-occupier space where uh, quality is... is um, much more highly regarded than, say, you know, investment return or, or other kind of um, purchasing decisions. So uh, quality is not only from the developer themselves, but their architect, their team, but most importantly, the builder. Um, and a builder with a great track record is um, a, a huge consideration for any buyer. Yeah, I agree with that because I know that when we do our own off-the-plan sales, quite often buyers will ask, who the builder is going to be and if it is someone that's reputable it just allays their concerns around quality and whether it'll actually get built on time or get built at all absolutely there's this kind of social proof in that you know if a big the big tier one contractor is interested in building this project well hey that it, it's it's a real project it's going to happen it's going to be built so and, and also just from a, a, a finance perspective, big banks like funding big projects and big develop, uh, big big builders behind there. So um, it, it just de-risks the whole process from the financier's point of view as well. All right. And so did anything else happen along the way in that first project? Give us a bit oh, of a yeah. sense of 20. other challenges <laughs> or... Um, not naming names, but an uh, infrastructure provider, um, NBN was, um, uh, well, I just named it, but uh, I guess I can speak honestly and candidly about that. But NBN, um, we agreed that it was going to be installed by a certain date and then all of a sudden it was just a policy change. And and um, um, being our first project, I didn't quite realise that NBN and Telstra weren't the same organisation. So um, then having to arrange Telstra to try and install an internet connection um, at the very last minute in a project was was an almost impossible feat and, and we didn't quite get there. And, of course, you run the risk of being in breach of contract to uh, 18 buyers who bought off the plan and moving into their units without um, internet. And, uh, you know, problem solving <laughs> came to the fore and we, we realised we had to give everyone uh, little uh, Wi-Fi dongles to, to get them over the hump between when they moved into their new homes and when Telstra pulled their finger out and finally installed the internet connection to the building. Yes, connections for all those kind of stuff can be really frustrating. Actually, is that something as an architect that you wouldn't necessarily turn your mind to when you're doing a pure design project for a client in terms of all the civil works and all those other ancillary items that you need to get done when you're finishing off a project? No, we'd, we'd never, ever get involved at the back end of the project. Again, we would uh, coordinate those things and arrange them at the, at the front end and allow for them or spatial allowances in our design for services and connections. But you never have line of sight to, you know, signing the form, the agreements, the 
the deposit bonds and all, all these things that go in place to actually get these connections installed and, and, and implemented. You, you only really experience that if you're in the construction world or have a bit of line of sight to that as the developer. But again, you know, knowing all these constraints now and putting that back on the builder to organise and making it part of the builder's scope of works, um, I, I'd, I'd pay a builder three times the price of what it would cost me to do it because it's just such hard work and you ultimately don't want to make any mistakes. So lumbering that risk to the builder has been our solution um, moving forward with our projects. And what about having you as the architect involved in the project, was that also something that was appealing to prospective buyers? Yeah, I, and I was really um, mindful of that at the outset and as, as our point of difference, and it, it has resonated beautifully um, to the point where uh, a lot of our clients will come to us before we've even done a project to say, oh, look, you know, we're, we're thinking about um, downsizing or we're thinking about moving to a certain area. I, I, would you ever consider doing a project in this area? So we actually get a good response from our buyers um, because they're seeking out a quality product and wanting to know where we're going next. So the, the idea has really resonated, um, Justin. So we've, we've been blessed in that respect um, um, that, you know, not, not a lot of developers um, do place their architect at the front and centre of what they do. Um, a lot of developers do like to just pay lip service to design um, and, and really our key point of difference is that we're um, wearing our kind of heart on our sleeve, so to speak, and, and putting our ideas up there and saying, well, no, we, we are committed to quality. This is what we do and we believe in it. And I think whenever you put something of quality to the market um, in any business uh, or any service industry uh, or any product industry, quality does sell. There is a, there is a niche market for it. Um, so we've been very lucky to, to tap into that market. I wanted to ask about that from a commercial perspective. When you put your commercial hat on as the developer and you're also balancing your desire as an architect, is there a juggling act to play between those commercial imperatives of delivering a profitable project and your design sensibility of delivering something that's really beautiful? Absolutely. And, and um, you know, just, just coming up with really expensive, lavish finishes or things that look incredible but just cost a fortune to build. Um, um, and, and we've all been there as, a, as an architect, as a practitioner for our clients and, and kind of design things that are over budget or out of, you know, just couldn't be built. Or, and and you, there's this kind of process called value management where it's all wound back. Um, you know, bring again, bringing the builder in early, you can throw all these ideas on the table and come up with solutions that are viable and cost effective so that the interests of the project can be balanced and we can do incredible things um, up front and embed them in the kind of DNA of the project to make them intrinsic to the approval and the offering to, to the consumer. Um, just doing it in isolation is a really dangerous game. So an architect without any commercial kind of imperative is is can actually be a burden upon a project so leading with that um and using that as the driver in which to um bury it in, intrinsically in the design it, it shouldn't cost extra if if done um efficiently so there, there is a balancing game there but it really it, it's not 
you know, our skill as architects to, to do that. It's about bringing the interests uh, or, or, or the, uh, the skill set of the builder on board and, and tempering that with the engineers, with, with the whole project team to come up with solutions that, that do work. So what would your advice be for a developer out there who's listening in in terms of engaging an architect for a project and being able to drive them or harness their powers, their, their superpowers, to deliver a project or deliver design for a project that's going to meet their brief? Yeah, I think if it's specifically in the owner-occupier segment uh, or sector, I'd be bringing the builder in really early, making them part of the project team, respecting their skills, being open and transparent about how much this needs to be built for so that there's a clear objective there to, to achieve, um, and then using everyone's knowledge and skills to ensure that, um, that the project will be delivered and that there's no kind of cost-cutting at the last minute because... There's nothing worse than um, a developer who lines up and promises to the market, to their buyers, who says, hey, look at these great renderings and, and buildings that we're, we're going to build. And then the buyer's coming through at settlement um, and looking and going, that looks nothing like what you said it was going to look like. Um, it, it poses all sorts of settlement risk around it. Um, to, to a market that's investors, I mean, investors couldn't care less. They probably don't even look at half of, half of the things. Um, they'll just walk in at settlement and go, well, is it rented? Great. Who cares? Let's move on. Um, next investment. But to an owner-occupier who's going to live there, uh, th- these things are fundamental. So getting it right from the outset with your uh, construction team, uh, we found it's, um, it's a very successful model. Yes, and I think you've evolved your company to actually doing your own in-house selling as well to help address some of those issues and concerns that buyers may have. Absolutely. Uh, owner-occupiers, they want to uh, uh, tweak and twerk the plans to, to tailor them to suit their, their needs. And so many of the, the bigger developers in the owner-occupier space just say, no, um, no thanks, and um, come at settlement, you can do whatever you want with it, but until such time, no. Um, this is the product you're getting and this is what we're delivering. And and that works very well for them. Um, but there is a huge cohort of the market that doesn't want that and wants to sit there and, and have their voices heard or wants to collaborate with an architect and customise and make changes. So I really would consider that a huge part of the selling process and we're really seeing a lot of our agents who work for us um, as being more kind of uh, lead generators and bringing great buyers to the table and, and they're paid very handsomely for, for that for that role. But really the conversion and the selling doesn't really happen until the buyer is satisfied and, you know, don't underestimate how hard that is for an owner-occupier. So an owner-occupier might sit there uh, as a buyer and take a week or two to deliberate and make up their mind as to whether to purchase or not. And a lot of the time, it's a, it's an emotional decision to purchase. So, and we just treat these buyers as they were our clients and um, talk to them about how they want to live and how they would live in this unit. And, and ultimately, sometimes we put put the hand up and say, "Hey, I, do, I don't think this is the right apartment for you." Um, we we have done that with some buyers and said, "Look, we, we just don't think this is." A good fit. Um, would you consider 
going into uh, another building that we're, we've got coming up or um, would you consider another apartment within the building? I think this one's a bit, a bit better for your needs. Um, and I think um, just being really honest and open with people works um, better to find a solution for them because with owner-occupiers, they, they, they're not irrational or it's not, it's not an analytical purchase. It's very much um, if it's not right, they won't buy. So, and, and knowing that early, you can identify that and either stop yourself having two weeks of your team working with a buyer, <laughs> knowing that ultimately you know that they're not going to purchase because it's just not fit for purpose um, or it's too large or it's too small or it's, you know, so you can, you can steer them in the right direction. It's an interesting point that you make because you're actually working with prospective buyers essentially in the same way that you would work with a potential architect client or architecture client, isn't it? You're basically talking about the same kinds of issues or outcomes that people are going to want from the place they're going to live. Exactly. It's the exact same skill set required and with our architectural clients we're designing things down to the doorknobs and and the hinges on doors so it's that kind of um attention to detail that is required in the uh, owner-occupied space and really i see there is um that role that we have and that that critical team of staff that serves our clients are there at the at the helm and at the ready to um service these uh these buyers who come in and and, and want to talk about what, what the hinge is and want to talk about what, you know, how, how far, to what degree we can open the door. And it's even down to, well, where do we place the keys when we walk in? You know, that, that kind of level of commitment to our, our buyers is, is a critical piece of our offering and talking through exactly how they live. So we've just done the exercise recently. We sold a, uh, uh, I think there's a 265 square metre apartment, um, uh, project in New Farm in Brisbane and lovely views of the city and we had a young family buy that apartment and, you know, we're talking to them about, well, this apartment was designed for um, someone with um, typically an elderly children. It wasn't designed for someone with children in mind. So we took them on a journey about redesigning that and, you know, discovering that, you know, their, their youngest son uh, plays, um, I think it was... Um, um, the trombone or a large musical instrument and having to locate a space for that as soon as we walk in the door when we come home. So, you know, just really being able to be flexible and, and redesign the apartment to suit their needs um, was a huge selling point. And, and they'd been around town and looked at kind of every other developer and development and really hadn't been offered that level of service. So having that ability to customise and, and change meant that they, they became very rusted on and, and ultimately ended up purchasing from us. So what did you do? Did you have to design a soundproof room for them as well? <laughs> yeah, that's always on the list. Um, <laughs> and increasingly right at the moment, we're, we're, the Zoom room is uh, becoming uh, all, all the rage. So designing a space in which two professionals can work concurrently um, at the same time um, is, is a huge um, part of our brief and we're, we're customising and tailoring a lot of um, uh, of our homes to to accommodate such such a need. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the challenges that presents because as soon as you start customising it, it, it introduces more complexity and 
generally the cost will go up with the with the build. How do you manage to stay on top of all that? Because I know I've personally had issues with changes being made in townhouses and they get missed along the way and then it gets finished and something's the wrong colour or the tiles are not what they're supposed to be and it's a big headache oh, to have to try and unravel absolutely. and solve and, that. And, and, of course, you know, it's not it, – it's to, to, our, to our audience who's listening, it sometimes seems like a – oh, it doesn't really matter, you, you know, PowerPoint missing or something. No, you're actually in breach of contract as a developer and you've got millions of dollars sometimes on the line as a result of being in breach of contract. So you really want to be able to to, to have good systems in place to ensure that, um, you know, the, these variations that, that do come up are cross-checked on site um, and relayed to the contractor. And, and sometimes it's just human error that, that, you come settlement and oh goodness, um, all these changes uh, haven't been made to the cabinetry, or the wrong kitchen got installed in the wrong units, or this this happens. It's it's a frequent occurrence. So um, we're currently rebuilding a lot of our systems in house. We thought we had good systems, but we have devised better systems. And often just having the customer themselves come onto a building site and. You know, I know that's forbidden by a lot of the bigger developers because, you know, it's uh, uh, there's all sorts of risks that come out of that as well. But um, I think it's a lesser a lesser risk and most of the time our, our buyers are so motivated to purchase that they, they love the idea of coming on site. So we usually um, like to try and engage them and, and give them a walk around and um, just make sure that it, it, it is right. And I always say, well, look, if, if a buyer is going to pull the pin on their unit that they've customised, I'd rather know that um, really early on and be able to either A, not make the changes, or B, find a backup buyer that that, that, that will settle this contract. Um, and, I mean, we, we haven't had any contracts ever fall over, thank, thank goodness. Um, and I think a lot of that's down to the fact that we do work so closely with our customers um, and relationships are formed and... Um, you know, obviously, we, we, it's gone the other way where we've let people out of the contract. We had um, we had one uh, couple that um, you know were working at Qantas and put the hand up very early at the start of Corona and said, "Hey, um, I just don't think we're going to be there at settlement to settle this." And um, we said, "Yeah, look, sure, um, we'll work with you to resell it now, knowing that there's still a very eager um, set of buyers there to to." take over and, and, and this unit from, from you. And, and again, they had, they had a number of variations that were scheduled and it was better that we had that relationship and they could voice their, their issues and say, hey, we're, we're not in a position to settle this or we don't think we will be. Um, so we could kind of mitigate that risk. Had we been a closed book and just ignored it and buried our heads in the sand and not be engaged with our, our customers, we, we probably would have only realised that at settlement and you know, created a bigger risk for ourselves, obviously. Yeah, I'm quite curious just to explore this a bit more about how you deal with prospective buyers. Um, so is that a, do you have like a business development person or a particular um, architect or someone that manages those uh, encounters with prospects and then feeds the information yeah. back and to your architectural I team or do you get involved? How does, what's the sort of nuts and bolts about how that looks? Yeah, I, I like to always um, have a large team involved. So typically uh, it's either 
um, that, that that first port of call is myself and or my business partner to meet and greet and the, let the customer know that they've got line of sight to the to to um, the head of the business and you know phone numbers are available should things go astray but ultimately it's the project architect and also our um, in-house um, development manager um, who who run that kind of uh, relationship and do manage that. And I'm still involved as a design lead, so I'll participate in some of those changes and give advice and, and input, but it's it's then down to the, the project team themselves to uh, to handle that re- relationship throughout the, the course of construction. Okay, interesting. Uh, and let's move uh, through some of your other projects. So you got your first one done, your 18 apartments, they all sold, settled, everyone was happy, you rode off into the sunset with your fat check. What happened next? Well, we identified toward the end of that project that we needed something else to go into and there was nothing really around at that time and one of the resounding bits of feedback that we'd taken from our buyers was that they weren't quite ready to move to an apartment, they still wanted a a bit of a yard and maybe a little pool and started kind of writing notes and listening to that feedback. Um, and we launched a, uh, a freehold townhouse scheme of nine nine freehold um, houses in um, a, a neighbouring suburb and really just got that to a price point and that was of value and kind of undercut the price of an apartment, a downsizing apartment in that area. Um, so really trying to find a gap in the market and again that was that was a huge success we we sold that project out um, and that's been delivered and built we then one of the other bits of feedback that came out of the first project was the apartments weren't large enough and there was a lot of feedback there people our buyers wanting to amalgamate as input two large two and three bedroom units together and make these supersized apartments um, that are not on the river, and, and that's really um, a very untested model or was a very untested model in Brisbane, and you'd, you'd be crazy if you went and launched a project like that, but we thought, well, why not, um, and and kind of give the punters what they want, <laughs> so to speak, uh, and, and really listening to that feedback, went and bought another site, um, that wasn't on the river again and went and launched a project of large, really large apartments for this cohort of buyers that we, we knew would come because, again, no one else was supplying that product to the market and having a line of sight there to one or two buyers who we knew would be would instantly purchase um, egged us on to go, well, okay, well, we know what they're in a probably similar demographic to these other people who haven't raised that, but if we build it, they will come, so to speak. And, again, we've managed to sell that project out. Um, so that's sold out now. We've just started digging the basement for that particular uh, project, um, which should be built in about 12 months' time. Um, sorry, did you say how many apartments or that was? Yeah, that was... Um, that was 18, but I think that's now back at 17. Um, we had someone amalgamate the two penthouses into one super penthouse, which was uh, um, an, an incredible um, project to work on. So that was a 600-square-metre unit in the end of it, 
um, for apartments and um, um, an incredible project to work on. Um, so you said it was crazy to launch a project like that because it hadn't been done before, but what gave you the confidence and the courage to be able to do it? I guess um, developers fall into two camps. They're, 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 there's really um, um, people who like to go out there and find gaps in the market, and I call them pioneers and pioneering developers. And I, I reckon um, maybe three and four out of four projects will work and be successful, and the other quarter will tank and do poorly. Um, and other developers will watch other, what other developers are doing and mimic or copycat or look at what they're doing and change it slightly to be successful. Um, so there's really kind of two two ways of developing out there. Um, we really like to pioneer and I like pioneering because you don't have any competition. Um, and when you don't have any competition, you can do whatever you want. You can market however you want. You can sell it for whatever prices you want. Um, you're literally first cab off the rank. And with that comes a lot of... Uh, not distrust, but you have to prove trust to these buyers and these people who are ultimately will make the project either a success or a failure. So I like that challenge and um, I like having a hunch about something or knowing that, you know, um, and, and there's little things that we saw. So we saw at the time there were changes to the superannuation uh, policy of the federal government, which meant that people could sell their family home and, um, put money into their, their super uh, tax-free at certain amounts. And, and I knew that that would be a primary driver for people to sell up their large family homes um, and, and, and larger properties. And, you know, where are these people going? And at the moment, there was no choice other than riverfront stock or moving to the beach. And, of course, not everyone has the finances to do that or wants to do that. So we saw this as a big gap in the market. And... You know, anecdotally seeing that on other projects that we were doing either for ourselves or other developers and, and watching these people trying to amalgamate two-bedroom units from an investment developer and thinking, what on earth are they, they doing trying to buy into a building that's full of investors and students renting? Um, why would they want to live in that environment? Well, primarily because they didn't have any other options. So, you know, we had a pretty strong hunch that, again, that you, you could you could do this and, and pull it off. So even though it hadn't been done, we were reasonably confident that there was a good market there. Okay. Well, it sounds like it worked out for you. Yeah. Gut, gut feel can sometimes be um, the, the thing to follow, but um, but can also backfire as well. It can, can go the other way. And thankfully, we haven't um, been in that um predicament as yet. I'm keen to learn whether there's been a really challenging obstacle or setback that you've experienced or faced that turned out to be a really fantastic learning experience. Yeah, I think um, very early on, um, it's probably more in um, my architectural practice, but uh, we, we grew very we just grew way too quickly and we got to a size very early on that we just didn't have the financial resources for. Um, I, I would literally rely upon what people would say 
when they would say, I'm going to appoint you next week to do this fantastic large project or um, as soon as development finance comes through, we'll appoint you to do all the construction drawings. So I would just take that quite literally and go and gear up and put on two or three staff to service that, you know, great up-and-coming project. And that backfired massively, Justin, to the point where, you know, we're sitting there holding the bag um, at times and people either changed their mind or were just at, at times just lied about their ability to pay for that service. And it became a really frustrating point of control. And, and what, we, what we've learned from that as an architectural practice is don't rely upon your clients for your success in, in, in your business. You, you really need to um, create your own pathway and either take control of those projects for your clients and have better line of sight as to what on earth they're doing behind the scenes So, um, and, and or just discard those types of clients and go out there and do it yourself. Back yourself and run your own projects and control the risk. And, and I'm much more comfortable um, with the latter in that if we're in control of the project, well, we know when the approval is going to come out. Um, we know that we're going to have to gear up and service a lot of these buyers off the plan. We can resource and allocate staff members much more effectively when we're in control of the project. And even though we've kind of got uh, a vested or, or a conflicting financial interest in that we're also responsible for the whole project's finances, financials as a developer, to me, that's a lesser risk than relying upon uh, a client that you barely know to either give you a job or take a job away from you. Um, if uh, someone decides one day that they just don't like the colour of the tie that you're wearing, um, you, you, you don't have a job um, in, in professional services. It can be a really, um, a really challenging business to be in. And so do you still take on individual clients or for residential projects? Absolutely. We take on plenty. Um, I, I still love uh, being of service to clients, but we really, again, one of the things we've learned out of um, growing too quickly and or taking quite literally what people said, uh, learning from that, what we took out was that we, we need to make sure values are aligned. And it's, again, very similar to what we do with our buyers, with our clients, we need to ensure from the outset that our values are aligned, as in we want to make sure that they want to build something quality. And, and believe it or not, as an architect, most people who come to you for service, they actually don't want you to work to the best of your abilities, as in you're restrained as an architect by the uh, budget, time, or just people's fear of doing something different. So. I don't want to do projects like that. <laughs> um, so it kind of got to a point in our career where we don't have to take on projects because we have to take on projects. Um, so we, 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 we seek out people who want to do daring and dangerous, wonderful bits of architecture. And that to me is so much more exciting and it's so much easier to retain your talents in your team when you're offering projects that are, you know, uh, uh, a wonderful chance to, you know, progress design ideas and explore new pathways. It, it, it's just such a more, uh, 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 such a greater place to work in every day. <laughs> you don't hear the terms daring and dangerous when it comes to development too often. 
No, you don't. So it's a good um, it's a good research and development or R and D kind of uh, environment in which to explore a lot of um, uh, building ideas. So, for instance, we just took on with another developer who's um, a home builder, and they wanted to do Australia's first passive house. And literally had to pull out the dictionary and work out what a passive house was, but um, uh, before we committed to that, that but but really taking that idea and then exploring that on a on a small scale for a client has enabled us to think, well, hey, how could we apply something similar to um, a bigger building, and should we be doing that in our line of business and doing something of of um, this quality on on a larger scale? Yeah, I think that point that you make around alignment is actually a really, really important element of developing, particularly when you're putting your team together. As we were talking about before, you want alignment with your with your builder and your other key members of your team, whether it's your designer, your sales agent, those really important people, you need that alignment because you're working with them for years and you want to be able to work constructively with them on the inevitable issues that pop up that need solving. Absolutely. It's it's like the old adage of, you know, everyone's rowing the boat, but someone's got the oar back to the, the paddle back to front, you know, it's it's um the boat will go around in different directions. So everyone's just got to be on the same page and it's very important to in the interviewing process to get that right with with all of your team. Mm, yeah, I think that there's some good questions that you should be or could be asking people that you're looking to bring on your team around that. I think you'd call it values alignment. Indeed. Mm. Has there been something unexpected or unusual that's come up during a project that you've had to solve or resolve? Oh, look, I think every day there's a new set of challenges. Um, I think one of your previous um, podcasts talked about um, problem solving and, and, and that's a day-to-day minutia that, that, that occurs and you get very, very good at quickly putting out fires or predicting bushfires, as, as we call them in here. We've had some absolutely um, cracking moments in development. Um, I think one of the, the biggest ones was we... <laughs> Was the uh, and maybe I shouldn't tell the story, but um, I won't name names. But um, um, we had a plumbing contractor uh, who was who saved the day one day, and we we had the um, the inspectors out from uh, the the relevant authorities to sign off on the uh, the, the the plumbing approval, and um, they said, "Oh, listen, um, you know we we can't sign this off." And we said, "Well, what do you mean? This is the very last approval we need to settle the building." Well, you, you, you're missing the valve that we need to sign it off. And he said, "Yes, yes, we we know because you haven't supplied us the valve. You're out of stock." And of course, well, you know, well, we can't sign it off until you know we supply the stock. And they're saying, "Well, okay, well, provide us the stock." Well, it's just it's just a horrible moment where you realise that the person signing off your. <laughs> so the way out of that, which was very creative, was. Um, uh, another building that was had just been certified the previous day, we were able to, the plumber ran across town, pulled the valve off that project before people moved in, brought it across to this project and said, oh, I just found the valve that was in the back of my van, put it, put it on the, <laughs> and then got it signed off and then took the valve back to the other project so that people could, it was just, it was just a comedy of it. It was just ridiculous, but it solved the problem. But, you know, for a moment there, I, I think we're all just panicking 
freaking out saying, well, we're not going to be able to sell this for at least a month. And, you know, when you're at peak debt, um, it, it, it's quite, quite, quite scary. Yes, I love it when someone comes up with a relatively simple solution to a very complex or particular, uh, potentially complicated and costly problem. So awesome. Yeah, I, I guess another one, Justin, we, we, um, we, our infrastructure charges uh, or headworks charges, I think as other developers call them, um, the contributions you make to the council, we, we paid them and I think there was a cheque that was made out for about half a million dollars or something and, and that went missing. <laughs> as in we we definitely paid it we handed it over but it it quite literally went missing and that was i i cannot remember how that was resolved but um that was a terrifying moment um where we thought something had been paid but it but it hadn't been i think uh, at councils that t- uh, missing money as it were tends to ends up in the christmas count in the christmas party fund doesn't it the Council Christmas Party Fund. <laughs> that check's somewhere floating around the uh, coffers of council somewhere, so hopefully no one will go and cash it again if they hear this podcast. So what would you say are the key lessons that you've learned so far from your developing experience? I think you've got to back yourself um, as, as a developer. I think you've really just got to listen to your intuition Um and, and really understand your own business and your own customers and, and, and look at the reasons why you're successful. I mean, we always talk about in business, you know, look at reasons where you're not successful and fix those. But I think look at the reasons why you're successful, why you're doing well, and then turn up the volume on that. Um, do it better. Do it. Just exaggerate it. Just be really good at one thing and just do it beautifully. Um, I think time and time again, Yes, you can fix things um, and you can fix problems, but you're being more reactive. I think if you're actively going out there and turning up the dial on what you're good at, um, people will see that and, and, and take note. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about whether you develop under a different brand to Joe Adset Architects or whether you do you promote it as a Joe Adset Architect project or from that kind of marketing and branding perspective, how, did, how does that work? We definitely promote it as a Joad Set um, Architects project, um, and, and that can be somewhat um, confusing to a lot of people uh, within the market, and, and we did struggle with that at first, but I, I actually see the word developer or development can sometimes be seen as a bit of a dirty word um, by the consumer, and it's a bit of a kind of, um, oh, you know, it's a, it's a bit kind of, whereas I think leading with the word architects you know, is is primarily what, what we are doing. Um, the only core difference is that there is no developer involved or the developer is indeed the, the person who is in charge of the design and, and running the project. So we, we do for that reason. Um, and we did toy with changing the name of our company um, um, for specifically for developments, but it, it was just it was confusing um, and confusing not only to the staff internally but externally to our clients who are buying from us who knew already what we were doing, but there is a kind of um, perception out there in the market. I think if we did brand ourselves as um, developers that, that, you know, we'd probably get more opportunities from um, people selling sites or taking us a bit more seriously because I think sometimes the word architect implies that you, you don't really have the, the clout there to get in there and buy a site and do development, but, but 
Um, you know, it's just, just simply not the case. We're really ready and able to, to get into the next project. And so do you do design work for other developers? Yeah, and that was one of the terrifying things when we kind of made the decision to go into development. I was so worried that we would kind of eliminate all our other developer clients um, because there would be a clear conflict of interest. But it actually had the opposite effect. Um, And we were run off our feet um, trying to keep up with um, all these developers who wanted us to do their projects. And I couldn't work out why. And it struck me that when we looked at it, that one of the reasons why was that because we had demonstrated fiscal aptitude to take on and tackle these big projects and demonstrated capability that, hey, I don't want to work with this very, very Arctic. I want to work with this guy who knows exactly what they're doing and their staff that know exactly what they're doing and have done this. So it, it, actually, it actually worked really well. Um, having said that, again, you've just got to ensure when you work with any client in a service-based business that the interests are aligned because often a lot of the people we interview for these roles and this work, we, we can't add value to their projects because the interests aren't aligned as in say, so, oh, look, I, re- I really want to, you know, do this kind of stuff for downsizing an occupiers or I really want to get into this market or can you come apply this formula to uh, it, my investor stock Um and it just doesn't work. And I often will just say to people up front and say, look, it's a great project. Um, no doubt it will be successful, but we can't add value. Um, and if we can't add value to your project and your bottom line, then, then really we can't take the project on. We'd just be taking it on um, purely on a monetary basis, which, you know, it's, it, it's just going to be disappointing for, for both parties. So you, you're better off just identifying that up front and, and, and being open and honest with people. Yeah, it's an interesting point because you're in the market with projects, like you've got your own Joe Adset Architect projects where you're the developer and you're leading and selling and delivering. And then you've got other projects that you design that you don't necessarily have that detailed, uh, deep involvement with. Just wonder how that might work from a consumer perspective or maybe it has, maybe they don't even think about it. I think it's thought about a lot, actually. Um, and there, there is a clear conflict of interest there at times um, in the other developers. We're, we're, we're going for the exact same client base. Um, and a lot of these people that will buy off the plan in another suburb will come over and buy off the plan from us in another suburb. So th- there is a clear conflict of interest. But um, I, I'm very, very uh, deliberate about um, identifying that, fessing up, and, you know, just acting with honesty and integrity ensures that, you know, these clients we do take on and identifying the clear conflict and saying, well, we won't we won't be naughty boys here or we won't step out of line. Um, it, it, that trust goes a long way. And um, I, I just, I, I think that given our professional background, the fact that we've been doing it for so long in this industry, um, reputation is, is such a key piece and, it takes uh, decades to accrue and, and seconds to lose. So um, we, we hold on to that reputational uh, piece very strongly, uh, particularly in Brisbane, given that its uh, reputation is, is everything in a, in a, in a small, small city. 
So, Joe, what's something that surprised you along the way in terms of doing developing or just maybe as in architecture or just in general? Oh, definitely the, um, um, uh, the importance of credit and bank, banks and finance and the role that that plays in any developer's ability to develop. Um, I think I really underestimated how important that was at the start of um, my developing career and perhaps access to credit was a lot easier back then, but um, certainly I can see, you know, just, just head-on collisions there every day with respect to the finance world and, and really seeing um, lenders, uh, how they can turn the screws on a lot of developers and it just wreaks havoc on projects. Um, so not underestimating that um, <laughs> That, that, that ability for a financier to um, move the goalposts, so to speak, um, and that relationship that you hold with your financiers or your investors is, is paramount. Yes, absolutely true. It's definitely fair to say that developing is a numbers game at the end of the day. And then what about the most difficult decision you reckon you've had to make in your business? Oh, and... I've struggled with this for years, but um, I guess the first 10 years of business, Justin was saying yes and saying yes to every opportunity um, that came our way um, for the very reason that we needed to just grow and, and do great work. Um, but now we're to a point, the hardest thing we need to do is say no. Um, and say, I really struggle with saying no. Um, I like being positive and can do and just, you know, doing everything I can um, to help clients and customers. But again, saying no to certain opportunities that you know where you can't add value, that you know where you, you, you really can't work to the best of your abilities. And uh, just it's a really hard thing to get into the habit of doing. And I, I struggle with that. Uh, and I think a lot of our team struggles with that. And, um, and, and often when you have a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things at once, just prioritising things and saying, no, we just need to do this and do this thoroughly and do it well and see this out. Um, you can easily get distracted and, and want to go um, off to greener pastures and pursue the next kind of um, project, but you, you've really sometimes just got to say no and just stick with what you're doing and, and, and finish off something beautifully. Oh, yes, I call that chasing the elusive something better. Yes, yes. <laughs> now tell me, um, and, um, yeah. sorry to interrupt. So is no, your, you, you said your, your dad was an architect? Yeah, dad's um, um, retired these days, but... Uh, he's still with us? He, he was, yeah, no, he's, he's, still, he's still very much alive. <laughs> Um, and and a, a, a fountain of knowledge and wisdom there for, for me to call upon. Yeah, and what's his view about the projects that you've done and what you're doing? Is he does he like your design work? Or does, what does he think of your projects? Oh, I think I think he's very proud. Um, he makes that very known to me, which is 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 lovely. Um, and um, I mean, I, I spoke with Dad very early on and challenged him and really said, look. I see you're in a service-based model of business. I really want to pursue a product-based model of business, um, and and not really knowing what that was at the time, but um, and and having a lot of kind of high-level intellectual conversations with Dad about that, and really kind of seeing the stresses of 
of Dad, who ran um, a large architectural practice, and 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 really what it takes in terms of commitment to your partners and your staff and your clients, and, and years of dedication, um, and just knowing how hard that was, um, ha- has been wise counsel to say, well, look, that's great, and I want to do that too, but I want to kind of temper that with um, being more in a product-based industry where you are you have greater control over what you are doing and 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 not always beholden to these other larger rate of forces around you such as you know a large team of staff and or you know clients that um you do come and go um so just being in greater control of the projects and i think um at first he probably quite didn't quite understand what i was getting at and contemplating and, and now really kind of probably embraces it more and Probably understands this this idea of risk that it's actually not that risky to be a developer if um, if you can um, stay in charge of your financials um, you can uh, avoid greater risks which are, are, are around the corner in uh, your typical service based business. Yeah, I was wanted to get your view. I mean, I don't know the numbers in terms of architects that become developers. It, it doesn't seem something that common. Would that be a fair comment? And if so, why do you think that is? I think it's relatively uncommon. I think in the older days, um, it was a very natural career path. Um, I just think that sometimes architects are perhaps more creative um, and and not um, ever encouraged to take risks outside of their profession. Um in terms of their training, I think definitely the the studies that are available to young students at the moment who are studying the profession, they're encouraged to be much more entrepreneurial and and really have a diversity of skill sets that do align to a multitude of different avenues in the industry. So I think I think in many respects, I'd love to be, um, you know, um, a, a, a kind of uh, an example of what you can do with uh, a good set of skills that that you take from a university or a good formal training uh, education that you can go and diversify and change your business model. It doesn't have to be um, traditional architectural service as as um, as you've been formally trained. It, it can be the other things which you're set up at, at a tertiary level to to explore and and, and undertake. I mean, it strikes me as not being too many steps more to take from going from architect to being an actual developer. Yeah, and, and I think, um, I mean, I always joke and say architects are brilliant off-the-plan salesmen because that's the one of the key traits that you share with the development industry. Some of the best developers are, are brilliant visionaries. Architects are often... Some of them are fantastic visionaries and brilliant at selling their ideas off the plan to their clients. Mm. You're literally taking a concept in your head, putting it on paper or, or through form of a 3D visual medium and selling it to your client. It's no different if you're doing that um, to a greater audience of buyers. It, it's the exact same skill sets that are that are required. And 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 I I, I just see it as um, as a future industry there for architects who are just sick of old-fashioned architectural practice who just want to get out there and do it. Yeah, it's funny. When we talk about it, it strikes me as a really natural way of um, generating clients, Joe, <laughs> selling, the, creating projects to sell off the plan and then getting 
potential clients in and talking to them about modifying it or delivering it for them. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I think it's perhaps somewhat um, um, there's an older cohort of profession that might look down upon that as well. That's that's um, a conflict of interest with your client's interest, perhaps, or or um, you know you, you you're kind of stepping out of your lane, um, stay in your lane, so to speak. So I, I certainly don't subscribe to that. I, I think that's absolute utter nonsense. Um, um, and and, and I, I definitely think um, an entrepreneurial spirit in the profession of architecture is desperately required um, in order to uh, uh, resurrect confidence in our profession and, and, and the importance of design. I think we're only going to see that grow stronger and stronger, that, that bond with good design, um, particularly in a post-COVID world. Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day about the importance of design and how with all the lockdowns that we've had and in Melbourne, we're still in them, but hopefully they'll be over soon. But this people having to spend more time at home in their space because they've had to work from home, still working from home, they will become very aware of whether their home, their space, their apartment, their house, whatever it is, how well has that been designed? How do they feel when they're in there so much more now? Does it work for them? So I think there will be a heightened awareness around good design and how it can actually impact on how people feel when they're in their space. Absolutely. It's, um, it, it's intrinsic and, and, um, and, and just this whole redefined notion of home and work. Well, all of a sudden we're, we're all working from home and, and whether we all just go back to normal, who knows, or whether this is the new normal and working from home becomes the, 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 the new normal and, and we just have to learn to adjust to have our workplace in our home environment. That's an incredible thing to consider. What's your view on that, Joe? Where do you think we're going to head to or what, what may be some trends that emerge from all this? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe a bit more flexibility to life. Um, is what I'm seeing. Um, I actually think things will will go back to normal very soon, but I think there will also at the same time be a fundamental shift for some, but I don't think it'll be for all. So, again, it will be this kind of movement toward it, but only for a certain sector or, or segment of the market, and it, it'll, it'll be, again, a, a somewhat of a niche. Um, it might be 15% of the workforce operates like this, but it won't be all the workforce Okay, Joe. Well, I'm very keen to hear what you think the best piece of advice is that you may have ever received. I think um, doing one thing and doing it really well, um, not getting distracted, focusing on one thing. I mean, that, that's something my, my wife has drummed into me and in her infinite wisdom, um, really motivating me to um, just focus and concentrate on, on doing one thing really well. Um, I think another, other developers have always taught me a bit the art of deal-making and, and really understanding what the other side is thinking in, in terms of your approach to um, whether it be buying something or motivating someone to work for you or not work for you, um, really understanding what the drivers are there with respect what their interests and where, interests, where their interests rely and, and kind of being responsive to that rather than just approaching a negotiation or a discussion with your interests at heart, I, I don't think you'll be successful. Um, they're, they're probably the, the, the two that stand out for me. Okay, yeah, they're very good. And what about yourself? What do you think you've learned about yourself along the way, Joe? Um, I think I've got a lot of stamina. Um, 
I've got a lot of patience. I think I've learnt, even though I thought I was quite an impatient person, um, I think I think I actually have it in droves. And um, also I've become much more analytical, I, I think, rather than just being creative. I, I, I definitely have learnt that I am quite analytical and I can look at something and see why something has worked, but also equally look at something and see why it has failed. I think I think that's a that's a key component to um, a lot of successful entrepreneurs to not be scared of the moment and and trying something, but then trying something and if it works, well, hey, why did it work? And if it fails, reassess and look at it and go, well, that failed because of this. Um, and and being truthful and honest in 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 your examination of things rather than just kind of um, <laughs> hiding from the truth. I think that's, um, that's that's a big part of that. Yeah, I think when you close out a project, it's really invaluable to go through that process as well. So I know a lot of developers or smaller projects, maybe it's like just close it out, bank the checks and move on. No, you can't. You, you have to do a brain dump and... and all the things that went well and all the things that went wrong, I like to kind of bring everyone together and have a lunch and, and just have a scribe there to write it all down and it turns into a quite a long afternoon of drinks and, and conversation. But um, it's such an important exercise to, to really um, um, uh, brewstorm, as, as we call it, um, um, <laughs> brainstorm, but with, with a couple of uh, uh, drinks um, to really kind of... Uh, debrief and, and, and take away everything that, that was a success and a failure. Yeah, that's a really worthwhile process to go through. What would be your top tip for developers out there who would be looking to take their business to the next level? I, th- I think really looking inward and really understanding what is what it is that makes you successful or unsuccessful and, and really investing in the reasons why you are successful. Um, I, th- I think, again, it's just so important to um, turn up the volume on on those primary drivers in your business. Um, I just think, yeah, it's just so fundamental. And I'm curious to know if you lost everything tomorrow and you had to start all over again, what would you focus on? Um, I, I think I'd become an advisor um, and maybe if I didn't have any ability to run a big team or, um, you know, I didn't have any capital to invest into projects, I'd probably offer it up in exchange for sweat equity. Um, I'd probably try and, I guess, take on some of the biggest and boldest projects I could partner up with Um, um be it as, a, as an architect or an advisor or development manager or shadow developer, whatever the role was, I'd specifically, you know, like to use the knowledge base that, that, that I've acquired. Um, you, you can always, you know, take away someone's wealth, but you, you can't take away knowledge or skills. Um, and you see that time and time again of developers, I think, and, and anyone in business who's failed. Um, and you see them become successful again um, after a financial setback, notably because they do, at heart, have a brilliant set of skills there. Yeah, the, 
the, the pain can certainly be really important in terms of driving you uh, the second time around. Indeed, and, and thankfully that hasn't happened for me, but I have seen it with other colleagues and I've seen them bounce back and do tremendous things. So I think setbacks, as monumental as they may be, it's about, for some people, it's about what you do thereafter and your next steps. So, yeah, I think, I, I think that's how I'd, I'd approach it. All right, well, we're getting close to the end here. If people want to find out more about you or about uh, your practice or your developing business, where can they go? I Google. Um, I Google Brisbane Architect Developer. Um, that'll, that'll bring up our name. Um, Joe Adset uh, specifically is our name. If you Google Joe Adset, that's J-O-E-A-D-S-E-T-T. Um, and email's a great way of getting in contact um, or over the phone. All our details are on websites and um, or social media, just direct messaging us on socials. We're, we're out there. Yeah, I sometimes ask people how they came up with their business name, but I suspect I don't need to do that with you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you start a business and you're a small fish, you've got nothing to offer but your own reputation. And um, in hindsight, I regret that, but at the same time, it's a great thing to stand by, and if if you're true to uh, what you, yourself, then then having your own name on your business is is a great thing. Why do you regret it? Uh, often, in uh, uh, as you're growing, people then only want to deal with the um, with the owner of the business, and that that can be challenging um, to contemplate that you know if you're lining up for a particular service or um, there's an expectation that I'll be there at every step of the journey, but it's just not the case. And it can often be um, lead to problems with, with some particular prospective clients knowing that, well, oh, it's not Joe that's going to be working on it. Oh, mm. But often I find that some of the staff that we put on their project, they go, oh, this guy's much better than Joe at this particular role. <laughs> um, so, so it's actually, um, it, it can be a, somewhat of a, a difficulty at times, but um yeah, that's that's the only reason. All right. Well, we've kept you long enough. It's been really awesome talking with you today, Joe, about des- developing and design and everything that we've covered. Did you have any last comments you want to make before we round it out? Yeah, I just I just love to say thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure to be on the show, but importantly, um, it's a pleasure listening to your show. And, and um, as a long time listener. Uh, um, I, I've started re-listening to all the uh, the episodes. I, I only wish wish one more thing, Justin, that you you had more content for, for me to devour. <laughs> oh, I'll try and uh, step it up, Joe. <laughs> like yourself, got other things to do as well. <laughs> busy, busy fella. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you for those comments. I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it. The reason I put the show together is for people like you. I love producing it and. I hope people get some value out of it. They do. I can, I can assure you, and I'm one of them. Fantastic. Well, Joe, it's been really great having you on the show. really appreciate your insight and the time that you've taken with us today. Wish you all the best for your projects. Next time I'm up in Brisbane, we'll have to catch up, and you can take me around and point out all your legacy projects. I think that would be really awesome. I'd love to. It would be, it'd be my, my pleasure and my honour. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Thank you, Justin. See you later. Bye now.
Okay, there you go. What a great chat with Joe Adset. I like seeing an architect daring to take control of their designs and bringing them to reality. He's putting his money and reputation on the line, and in doing so, gets an intimate understanding of a development project and the risks involved. Here's three things I took away from our conversation. One, ensure you have the right values alignment with your property development team partners. Having the right people on your team is central to the success of the project and making sure that you feel confident in working with them, potentially for a few years, is really important as there will be bumps and issues along the way and you need good people to help you solve problems and work through dilemmas. Two, be daring and dangerous in your projects. Okay, so you generally don't want to be dangerous when you are delivering a project. But what Joe was getting at when he said that was not to be afraid of trying something new. You don't just have to follow the crowd. You can carve your own path and deliver something fresh to the market. So, how can you be daring and dangerous on your next project? Three, success leaves clues. So have you taken some time to think about and articulate the reasons why you have managed to get where you are today? What are your strengths that have underpinned your success? Joe's advice is to focus more on those attributes and turn up the dial on them, as this will help amplify your success and achievement. I really like that suggestion. So perhaps it's time for a personal awesomeness audit. What do you think you have been good at so far in life? All right, if you enjoyed that chat with architect Joe Adset, then you might like to go way back to episode 10, where I speak with the architect who has helped me on many of my projects. Dom Serantonio from CSA. We talked a lot about the value of great design, and Dom had this comment about the need for bringing something of quality to the market. If you can't go to the market with some sexy renders and some some great usable floor plans, you might be in strong. As usual, there's heaps of great tips and ideas in that chat, so go back to episode 10 and take a listen. Remember to email me if you are interested in learning how to develop property, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some further info. And you can catch my project updates on Facebook and Insta under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. Plus there's always lots of other news, views and fun things that I share. And you can find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may you be daring and dangerous with your next development project. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.